Amen. Praise God for our tapestry choir, their ministry to us and leading us in worship. Thank you. Praise God for Natalie and Shania's giftings as well and them using them to lead us. For the pastoral prayer today, I am a portion of my prayer is going to come from Common Prayer. Um, that is a book written, compi- written and compiled by Shane Claiborne, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, and Enuma Okoro. Um, and that book is for Christians globally across denominational lines to be praying um, prayers together each day. Um, so that a small portion of my prayer today comes from that. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, we come today to praise your mighty name. You are glorious. You are justice. You are truth. We praise you for your might and for your splendor and for the victory that you have, Lord. We praise you today. Who is like you today, Lord? Who is like you among the gods? You are awesome in praises. You are working wonders throughout the world today. You are our strength and our song. You have become our salvation. We thank you today, and we praise your glorious name. Today, Lord, you are king. May the earth rejoice. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Lord, we know you love those who hate evil, and you preserve the lives of your saints, delivering them from the hands of the wicked. Light has sprung up for the righteous, and joyful gladness for those who are true-hearted. Lord, wherever there is mercy, justice, freedom, and kindness, we know your good news is echoing in human history. Give us ears to recognize the sound of glad feet coming and grant us grace to join you wherever you are moving. May the peace of the Lord go with us today, Lord, wherever you send us. Guide us through the wilderness. Protect us through the storm. Bring us home rejoicing at the wonders you have shown us. And Lord, today um, we know that we cannot fully celebrate as the journey continues. There are so many more still in need of liberation from poverty and persecution. We cry out to you today, Lord, on behalf of families separated at borders, separated by war-torn areas, Send your word, your truth, your justice, Lord. Save and free them, mighty God. And Lord, give us the strength, motivation, fortitude, and courage to continue to fight for social justice, equity, and to dismantle all systems of oppression and supremacy. In the hope, Lord, that one day we will overcome May we walk arm in arm today, Lord, and forward towards justice for all. Grant us the humility and unity and grace needed to continue roads towards healing and restoration. Lord, today we do ask that you be with those who are in pain, in sickness, and grieving. You are the God of comfort and peace. May your presence be with them. In times of uncertainty, just may they know your presence, Lord. 
Today, Lord, we also just want to thank you and praise you for all the fathers here and represented here and those who have been fatherly figures to others, whether it's a biological or, or whatever sort of father it may be, Lord. Um, so many have served in that role as they have sacrificially and intentionally poured into others. We thank you and we praise you. We ask blessings on the father figures here today. Minister to them. May they feel your blessings. Um, may they be able to look back and see the ways you've used them to pour into others. We thank you for the intentionality. We thank you for the Christ-like examples that so many continue to show and to be as they point to you in their fatherly roles. We thank you for the seeds planted and that continue to be planted. We thank you for the joy um, that so many father figures just get to be in and, and bestow upon those that they pour into. Bless our fathers today, Lord. And Lord, today also we, we ask that you, you help our hearts. Um, our scripture reading is towards judging others. Um, be with our heart's tendencies to judge. We ask that we would lay before you our attitudes when our posture is wrong. May we stand fully, Lord, in your grace, in your love, so that we can extend it to others. Build us up in you, Lord, so that we can build others up in you. Um, may we trust you and in obedience, not judge others, whether it makes sense or not. May we trust you, Lord. Give us your eyes, and just give us a peace and confidence in your work throughout the world that we don't have to stand in that place of judgment. We can trust you as the final judge. Give our hearts understanding of the fullness of your amazing love for us, Lord, so that we can be bestowers of grace. Lord, we thank you today for Pastor Hank. Thank you for the word you've put on his heart. We ask for the continued work of your Holy Spirit through Pastor Hank, and in our hearts, as we desire to know you more, come closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. A lot of papers. I believe at this time the kids and youth are dismissed. Um, as we've been celebrating this morning, it's kind of is indeed a, a double holiday. Um, I think I saw the hers somewhere here. I don't know what the record is, but people have babies and then they feel the need to come to church. I think it's been nine days. I don't know. <laughs> Congratulations on Emerson Joe. Usually we have a um, Rose up here, but she was born, I think, June 10th. Is that right? So happy Father's Day to you guys as well. Um, nine days and you're in church. That's unbelievable. I don't think we took nine days, but that's just some of us. Um, but no, this morning as I thought about this double holiday and this gratefulness of us being here to worship together, I was reminded first of Father's Day, and I think it's important for us to share on Father's Day that this is a celebration of all those people who gift life, right? It's a celebration of not just we who are biologically able to have children, but it's a celebration of everyone who builds up, everyone who invests, everyone who protects, everyone who loves. So on this Father's Day, we, we celebrate that. And I 
I think for me, um, especially early on in my 20s and early 30s, Father's Day was an existential crisis, right? Because in my house, we didn't have a father, right? I lost my father at a very young age. So Father's Day was very, very tricky for me. Uh, and I think when I first became a father, it got even trickier, right? Because you didn't have like this physical example of what it's supposed to look like. Now, I had great people in my life who were good fathers, but you just didn't have this, this physical example. What I, what I realized is that I, um, I kind of kind of held on to these stories about my dad, right? The little stories I got, I held on to them, but it's hard to fashion fatherhood off two or three little stories. A couple of weeks ago, one of my good friends asked, is like, is being a father one of your greatest accomplishments? And I was like, well, that's a weird question. But yes. But as I thought about it more, I realized that, that when we think about fathering, I think the transition for me was, was going from like, wow, I don't know what this is supposed to look like. But then taking a step back and reminding that God is our father. And I think there's a reason that is consistently throughout scripture. And I don't think it's just because, you know, oh, we're talking about the masculine aspect of God. Because scripture is actually pretty clear that God also has feminine characteristics, right? But I think the reason that scripture comes back to this is that so many of us are formed or in relationships with people who don't look like God. Or so many of us are formed or in relationship with people who, who don't have that example, and so God claims to, or puts his foot down as, I am the example of what it's supposed to look like. So on this Father's Day, we celebrate, yes, those who, who are in our lives who give us life. But to those of us this morning who are hurting because our fathers have gone on, or our fathers have chosen not to be present, or, or we don't have those relationships with our fathers, we can still be reminded that on this Father's Day, we can celebrate because God is faithful. And the call to all of us is not to be fathers or, 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 in, or mothers like, like our fathers or our mothers, but... We're to look like our Jesus. We're to look like our God. So being faithful and, and fathering like God fathers is the work. So happy Father's Day. May we all be out there giving life and building up and fathering the way our God has fathered us. Hold on to that because I think that's important for what we're going to talk about this morning and how we can do that to one another. But the second celebration is, is today's June 19th. It's Juneteenth. And for some of us, this is a, a new holiday. But I think this is actually one of the most important holidays in America, even though we just acknowledged it a year ago, right? How can that be possible? Because I think that this is actually closer to Independence Day than July 4th. Because on July 4th, we weren't all free. On July 4th, if you weren't a rich white man who agreed with the people who gathered for the meeting, you were not free. That means if you were a native, you were not free. If you're a woman, you certainly were not free. If you're African-American, you were not free. If you were poor and white, you were not free. So while we can say all men or all people are created equal, they were not free. So when we talk about Juneteenth, it's important for us to realize that when this announcement is made, the war was still raging on. Freedom had come, but the war raged on. In fact, the Emancipation Proclamation is proclaimed two and a half years before Juneteenth actually happens. I love when people complain about government and gridlock and all this stuff. I'm like, you're acting like this is new. You're acting like America didn't set up this system to oppress, right? Like, we make laws, and it sounds like a 9 or 10, but then we never really flesh out the laws on a 9 or 10 level. So think about this. Abraham Lincoln declares the Emancipation Proclamation when? January 1st, 1863, in the heart of the Civil War. 
But it's tricky if you look at it. It's one of those things where it's like, you read it like, wow, this is an amazing document. But then when you look at the fine print, you realize that this is an interesting document. That first of all, Britain and France were threatening to what? Support the Confederacy. We can't have that. So he writes this document to say, wait, you guys are anti-slavery. Why would you support them? Boom, they're taken out of the picture. But the document also is written to the, to the states in rebellion, right? Meaning that if you're in a union and you still happen to enslave people, you can look at this law, this great document, and be like, mm, this doesn't really have to apply to me. So you have that aspect of it because it's written to the Confederacy. But it was also written, right, so that people who are enslaved, who can escape, aren't just made free, but so that they can fight. This is actually, I would argue, one of the greatest political documents. I don't know if it's, we can argue the morality of it, how you only give it to some people and not all people. We can argue all that. But politically, this is a brilliant document. You literally take France and Britain out of the picture, right? Like, they literally have to, they, they have to side with you. Because in their moral conscience, they can't say we outlawed slavery, we're going to fight for slavery there, right? You do that. But you also now unite your union against the states in rebellion, and you can recruit. But the trickiest part about this document is after it's proclaimed, the war is still raging, and it's two and a half years after that it hits Galveston, Texas. And you have to understand this aspect of it, right? You have not just the Union and the Confederacy and border states, which that's a tricky one too, because some of them didn't really follow the Emancipation Proclamation. Some of them held on to slaves too. But if you have time this afternoon, I want you to look on your map and find where Galveston, Texas is. It's on the southeast coast of Texas, right? It literally is in the Gulf. There's a reason this was the last place to hear. And so what the Confederacy heard when they heard the Emancipation Proclamation was like, well, that's not my president anyway. We don't say stuff like that today, do we? Hey, that's not my president anyway. I got to listen to him. We don't say stuff like that. We're so enlightened today. But what would happen is it would go out. And until the Union conquered the land, the Confederacy didn't listen to it. And if you find where physically Galveston is, not only is it a coastal city, it's kind of on an island, right? So it's kind of like separated. So the Union took two and a half years to get there. Clint Smith in his beautiful book, How the Word Was Passed, right? I think that's one of the greatest books that was written in 2021, right? And I'm not just saying this because Clint's a swell guy. He's a genius. But get the book if you haven't read it. Get the audible. It's unbelievable how he covers American history. But he tells the story about Ashton Villa. And how this major, uh, major General Gordon comes into town. And he tells the story about how today, today in Galveston they're doing it, right? But how they still gather together, sons of former Union, slave, uh, union owners or Union soldiers. I can't even say, I'm an Anabaptist, I can't even say soldier, right? Sons of former Union soldiers and, and descendants of enslaved, they still gather. And they gather at this place called Ashton Villa, which was kind of like the town center. And Granger marches to the forward. And when he gets there, again, two and a half years after Lincoln has decreed, two months after the South had surrendered Appomattox, he gets to the top of the villa. And from the porch of the veranda, he reads this. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Two and a half years after. Two months after the surrender, they're just now hearing they're free. 
This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And a connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employee and hired labor. This became known as general order number three. And what did that mean? They, like most government documents, they didn't care about the, the fine print and other things. All they heard was what? All slaves are free. And the celebration in that place spread from the town center to plantation, to plantation, to town, to town. Felix Haywood, who's 92 years old, formerly enslaved, says it like this. The end of the war, it come just like that. Like you snap your fingers, hallelujah broke out. Soldiers all of a sudden was everywhere, coming in bunches, crossing and walking and riding. Everyone was a singing. We was all walking on golden clouds. We was free. Just like that, we was free. So I know we get a day off tomorrow. And I think that's beautiful and great. But may we not remember, may we not forget, right? May we not forget the significance of what it means that two and a half years after his decreed, that two months after the surrender, that people were finally free, at least for a couple of years. But as I thought about Juneteenth, and Pastor Ryan in the, 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 the beginning in the, the call to worship talked about how there's this in-between, right? Spiritually, we call that the, the theology of the already, but not yet. We thought about how people had been set free by this decree, but they just didn't know it. I thought about how today there's people, even among us, who are living in shackles and bondage, and Jesus wants to set them free, but they don't even know it. We are the people of already and not yet. John says this, dear friends, now we are children of God, but we will be, what we will be has not been yet made known, but what we know is that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're already children of God. But what that means, we don't know yet. And I thought about how the kingdom of God is here, it's in us, it's in our midst, but it's also coming. So we, the people of the now, but not yet, we can gather to celebrate. Because what Juneteenth represents isn't Lincoln's liberation. To me, what Juneteenth represents is enslaved people who chose to believe in a God that their masters told them earned them oppression. What it celebrates is prayers of enslaved people who chose to believe in a God they saw as the liberator who pulls them out of slavery and not as a God who whips them and shames them and denies their humanity. What we celebrate on Juneteenth isn't just freedom granted by America, but the dignity of persons. The dignity of persons that this country is still struggling to give. And that's the irony of dignity, right? Is we don't give dignity. That's not what our scripture says. Our scripture doesn't say like, give dignity to people, right? We affirm dignity. And what that means is we truly believe <laughs> that we are all children of God. We are all created in the image of God. You don't need to give someone that. They already are the child of God but you do need to affirm it, amen? So we celebrate answered prayers, we celebrate the work, we celebrate freedom, and we celebrate it by turning to James. I had no idea how to segue that, but that's what we're gonna do. 
In James chapter 4, as we've been continuing in this series, we've been asking this question and say this is the lifetime question. This is a question you should wake up every day asking yourself for the rest of your life, right? What does this life in Christ look like? And, and kind of giving us a pathway to answer that has been the book of James. And this week we have two verses, two short verses, verses 11 and 12 in James chapter 4. And, and the theme of James is going to show up here again, right? Faith must show up in beliefs and life and practice. But as we read these verses, I want you to hear James's echo now because his echo is going to be from not only what Jesus said, but what he lived. I think that's important, right? James doesn't just know what Jesus says. He embodies it. He lives it. And that is what he teaches. So you'll hear the echo and the echo, which we'll read about later in Matthew 5, is James is going to basically say, you are accountable for what you say. And when we read this passage, we jump to the judgment, but we skip the accountability. And so that's where we're going to sit this morning, right? Because it's easy to get the second part. Don't judge, only God's a judge. Well, that feels good, right? But before you get to the judgment, you got to deal with the accountability. And James is going to challenge us and says, if you want your life to show up in your head, your heart, your hands, in your life and practice, you have to be accountable for what you say. Starting at verse 11, James 4, it's already up on the screen. You can follow in your Bibles as well. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister, some translations might say believer or member of God's family, or judges them and speaks against the law and judges it, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you this morning for the celebration that you are the Father who loves us perfectly. And God, for those of us who have earthly fathers who've loved us well, we give thanks. For those of us who have earthly fathers who, who aren't present or as present as we need or loved us in the way that we needed, we thank you that we have you. We thank you for your love that not only protects and holds us, but your love that inspires us, your love that carries us, your love that holds us together. So, Lord, we celebrate this Father's Day, not only the, those people who've, who've biologically birthed children, but all those people who've poured into people, who've built up people, who live lives that are lives of service and, and love and mercy and compassion to the people in their lives and even, yes, to our world. So we celebrate this Father's Day, the call for you as our Father and for us to father and love the way you have loved us. But Lord, we also celebrate freedom this morning. We think about the freedom that comes from you, the liberation that's afforded by you, by the work of your Son. So Holy Spirit, we pray this morning for those of us in shackles, Release us from bondage. For those of us who've never given our lives to you fully, convict us of our sin. For those of us who know the work of Jesus but haven't accepted it, Lord, forgive us and call us forth. For those of us who know the work of Jesus have accepted it but aren't living as we're supposed to be living, forgive us, Lord, and call us back home too. So, Lord, we pray this morning that you can give us tongues that bless that you can give us hearts to love, and that you, our God, make us people with hands that serve you and our sisters and brothers. In your holy and precious name, amen. 
So a couple weeks ago when I was up here, we talked about how living by the spirit, we're either living by the spirit or living by the tongue, about how James sometimes is going to make things very black and white, right? You're either living by the spirit of God, which is inside of you and transforming you into the image of Jesus, or you're living by the flesh. You're either living for God in his kingdom or you're living for yourself. You're either living to bring God's glory or you're building your own glory. And while one leads to blessing, the other one will lead to destruction. So he talks about the idea that we tame the tongue as a way to live by the spirit and how when we tame the tongue we are not just you know controlling ourselves but we're building up instead of destroying and then last week if you get to James chapter 3 there's this idea that we're either not just living and taming the tongue but when we live by the spirit we're living by wisdom that comes from heaven and it's either we're living by the wisdom that comes from God or we're living by our own wisdom and I want to turn you back to James 3 because he says it like this who is wise and understanding among you let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But what's the opposite of that? If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. James is talking about this wisdom that comes from heaven, but he contrasts it with the wisdom from earth. So again, there's this idea that when we live by the Spirit, we're building up. But if we live by the flesh, there's not only selfish ambition and evil practice and disorder, but it's the idea that we are destroying. Now this week, James is going to say, or next week, I think John Yates is going to be with us, and he's going to say, to live by the Spirit is going to be not just denying the flesh, but to live by the Spirit is going to be submission to God, right? It's going to be humility and humbling yourself before God. And that's the first 10 verses. But what we're going to focus on is just 11 and 12. And what I want us to hold is a simple truth that James wants us to hold, and is that we are going to be accountable for what we say. So he starts here in verse 11, again, addressing the Adelphos, the family of God. So James is writing to people who have identified as part of the community. And he's writing and saying, my brothers, my sisters. And I think it's interesting that he keeps coming back to this idea that we're family. Because it's easy for us to forget. That family is not just the people who live in our house. That family is not just the people who come from the same bloodline. That family is people who've been bought by the blood of Christ. And James wants you to remember that because our tendency is to forget, because our natural tendency is to focus on me and mine. And James is saying, no, 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 no. We belong to God, yes, but we also belong to one another. So in addressing this family of God, the command is pretty clear, right? Do not slander one another. In the Greek is kataleleho, which makes me want to sing a song. I don't know why, right? But don't kataleleho one another. It just rings better in my head that way. That's how I heard it. That's how I read it all week, right? But the thing about Catalahejo is James is again addressing the power of words. James is again talking about taming the tongue, except now he's giving you an example of what an untamed tongue does. And Catalahejo isn't just, oh, some translations say speak evil or speak again to brother and sister. Here in the NIV or the new NIV, it says do not slander, right? The idea here was gossip, 
The idea here was speaking evil, slandering someone. The idea here was what some of us like to call the meeting before the meeting, right? When you would gather and, and, and tuck in your hushed tones and your whispers, right? And, and then you would go before and you would have all this talking, right? James is addressing the idea that we as Christians are not to slander and gossip and destroy one another. That we are not to, to whisper in amongst ourselves where we feel safe and build this up, especially if the person is not there to defend themselves. James is saying, you are to be different. If you want to tame your tongue, do not gossip. And here's the thing we have to admit, and we have to ask for forgiveness. We love gossip. We do. Like, this is something that's true in every continent, among every people group. We love gossip. Right? Just look at what trends, or in, in the, or the, the earlier generation, y'all used to have these things called gossip magazines, right? Like kids today are just like, what is that, you know? But it's like, like you used to have like these like, I don't know what to call them, this is like the Inquirer and stuff like that. And I remember as a kid coming to this country, I was so confused. Because people would be like, oh, that's not true. But I'm like, why are you buying it? You know, it just didn't make sense to me. I was like an outsider. As a little kid, I'm just like, why is this even here in the grocery store? Like, we come here to buy food, you know? But it would put it right by the checkout, and I would just see people after people just picking it up. And I would talk to my, 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 my family. I'm like, but what is that? They're like, oh, that's not true. But I'm like, well, why are they buying it? We love gossip. But the work that James is calling us to here is to not only eschew and, and don't like gossip, but it's to not gossip. And the gossip he's speaking to is violent speech that seeks to destroy one another. And that's what he's calling us to. He's saying, I know your natural tendency, but remember what we said in James 3, what natural tendency does, right? It's not just disorder, but it's bitter envy and selfish ambition, and it destroys, right? Like, that's what he says in James 3. Your words can destroy one another. Now, I don't want you gathering up a team to destroy one another. Do not catalaleho one another. And the base that he's making this on is simply this. It's what some have called the royal law. It's what Jewish scholars, scholars call the Shema. It's what Jesus Jesus, our Christ, called the greatest commandment. You have to love the Lord your God with the entirety of your being, your mind, your body, your soul, your heart, right? Your gifts, your skills, your, your ambition. You have to love the Lord your God. And you have to love your neighbor, your brother, your sister as yourself. To James, to gossip, to speak against to slander, to gather up, to destroy somebody is denying God's law. It's going against what they held on to as the greatest commandment, but it's going against the Shema, which they memorize as little boys and little girls. Because what happens is that God's people are to love God and to love one another. And James seems to be thinking, how can you love somebody if you're gossiping about them? How can you love somebody if you're building a case to destroy them? How can you love somebody if you're just waiting and praying on their fall? How can you love somebody when they do fall, you're laughing at them? How can you love somebody when they mess up, you forget the plank in your own eye, and you want to point out the little speck in their eye? How can you love if you speak words that destroy? And that's what he's coming back to. Because the slander, the catalaleho, is to disrespect God's law. But greater than that, 
I don't want to say greater than that. That sounds weird, right? Because if this brings God's law, that's bad enough, right? So we'll say in addition to that, right? You destroy the family of God. You destroy your sister and brother. You destroy the unity of the spirit. If we are people who are living to gossip, to slander, to laugh at those who fall short, to injure, to harm, we are not being family like we're called to be. Because when we gossip, when we slander, when we get to Laleo, when we gather to, 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 to share these whispers that, that might lead to someone's utter downfall, James is saying that we're elevating ourselves above that royal law. That we're not just forgetting that we're supposed to love God and love one another, but we're saying that like this person isn't worthy of my love. They're not worthy of God's love. Look at what they've done. They are not worthy. And for James, if you're going to elevate above God's law, the consequence is that you're making a judgment that God's law isn't good enough. That God's law and God's command to love one another doesn't matter as much as you being right. Doesn't matter as much as them being wrong. Doesn't matter as much as you laughing at them. Doesn't matter as much as what you got to say. And to sit in that seat of judgment is to put yourself above God's law. Now to the ancient Jews, right? The courts or the, 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 the system that was created all flowed on God's authority. And there's a lot of people who still believe that, right? I think they read um, Romans 12 and 13 wrong. That's just me. We can have a, a conversation about that, right? Like I, they like submit to the authority. I'm like, have you studied the life of Paul? Have you seen what Rome did to Paul? That you really think Paul is writing to say, I want you to bow down to Rome. Who's going to torture me? Like that's what you're called to do, right? But that's another conversation. He's writing to the church. And what's interesting is that these Jews, like they really believe that the court and legal system, right? It flowed from God on high. The reason why I don't believe that is because I live in America. And since 1776, the court and legal system have not flowed from God's authority and they've not built up the kingdom of God. They've done a good job to build up America, but not God's kingdom. Right. But this is what they believe. Like some of us believe that it's set up so it must be good. Right. It flows from God. But James is working even within that premise. He's like, OK, fine. You believe that it comes from God and the authority comes from God. But here's the thing in our courts. You need two witnesses to even make a charge against somebody. But when you gossip, when you slander, you're not even going to get two witnesses. <laughs> you're a witness enough. And now you're spreading and sowing discord. So for James, it's that if you believe that this is set up by God, yet you're running away from that court and you're choosing to elevate yourself above the law and you're not even getting the minimum two witnesses, you are slandering. But by slandering, you're opening yourself up to judgment. Why? Because to judge is to be accountable to God's law, right? Do not judge because everything you judge, you will be judged for. And that's where it gets tricky with Jesus. Because Jesus seems to think it is not just our actions that matter. It's our thoughts and our words. Remember Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Ten commandments, Exodus 20. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
We get that part. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you murder, you're subject to God's judgment. But I tell you that anyone, this is where we all repent, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, there's that word again, Adelphos, right? People in the family of God, people created in God's image, the people of God. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Pause. Jesus just says, you think murder is what leads to God's judgment. It does. But also what you say, what you think, and what you do. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, right? Which we struggle to translate. Like the best I found is that it's an Aramaic term for contempt, right? It means empty headed one, right? Or you would never say something like this, but it's like calling someone an idiot or, or a dummy. Now this is hard for me because in Philadelphia, this is how we grew up. Like, hey dummy, what's up? You know, like this was a term of endearment, but now I'm hearing from my Jesus that I might be wrong, right? Like it's a term of endearment. Like, hey dummy, how's it going? But according to Jesus, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to the same judgment of people who kill. Anyone who says to a brother and sister, Raka, you empty-headed one, you idiot, you dummy, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. There's not too many things in Scripture that we can find consistently from Genesis to Revelation that God doesn't like. Gossip, slander, words that destroy, whether you're in Genesis or Psalms or Matthew or Peter or many of the writings of Paul, it's consistently God hates it because he knows it destroys. And so James wraps up by saying, when we judge, we become accountable for the things we're judging because we're not elevating ourselves to the judge ourselves, right? And then he says, but here's the thing. Only God is the lawgiver. Only God is the one who has power to save or destroy, not you. So don't judge. Don't slander. Don't destroy because our words are going to be faithful. Our words are going to be essential to this faithful witness. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that our tongues, they reveal the hypocrisy that lives within us, right? That how we can praise God and then curse one another. Because our hearts reveal, or our mouths reveal what our hearts are full of. That's another one that Jesus says, right? And when we think about this passage, or even all of James 3 going into 4 here, but how anger that produces harsh words, right? It leads to judgment from God. And I want us to hold that for a second, right? Because we all need to repent of this. We've all been angry and said things we regret. We've all, maybe not even in the anger, but when we let it seethe, right? Like the, the scripture talks about how sin sometimes is like pregnancy, right? I'll never be pregnant. Thank God he's a great God, right? But the idea is that sin starts from within you. No, I'm saying y'all are saints. No, I'm not. That's not a diss. That's like God is good. He chose women to stronger sex. Like that's not a diss. That's like good for you, you know? God bless you. I love you. You do the work. But when we talk about sin, right? And the Bible likens it to like the pregnancy that like it grows inside of you and then it gives birth to destruction. It's the same thing that's going here with the words that we say. 
And so what James is saying is that like, yes, you said a harsh word before, but according to Jesus, that's worthy of the same judgment as death. Because here's the thing, if we're not living to build each other up, if we are cutting each other down, we're not being faithful in living how we're supposed to live. Now, a quick word on judgment. Because just like before we said when people say like, only God can judge me, <laughs> they use that as an excuse to do whatever they want, right? And I want to kind of push back on that just a teeny tiny bit. Because accountability does not have to be judgment. If you're doing something to harm someone else and I try to hold you accountable, that is not judgment. That's mercy, that's justice, that's fighting for what God says is right. Accountability does not mean judgment. If I see you physically harming somebody and I go in to try to break it up, that's not judgment. That's saying you no longer get the, the opportunity to harm someone. That's saying you are wrong for what you've done, right? Accountability is not judgment. But here's the thing we as Christians need to hear. Accountability, though, must be done in a Delphos relationship. When I was at Messiah, um, I did one of the parachurch groups, and then I started playing, I started wrestling, so then I, I lost my life, right? Like, it's just I didn't have friends anymore. I wrestled, right? But in the two months we did training, they said something that stuck with me for over 20 years now. I said, all of us, we have to earn the right to be heard. And if we want to hold each other accountable, we got to do it in relationship. Because if I don't know you love me, am I really going to care what you say? Am I really going to listen to what you say? If your whole life is proven that you don't really love me, am I going to have any time for what you have to say? So accountability isn't judgment. If you're harming someone, we can say stop harming someone. If you're doing something wrong, we can say actually this is wrong. And that's hard in our culture. Right? Like our culture has made truth so subjective that it's hard. Like I break it down simple. It's like if there's an accident on Dairy Street, I get it. There's a hundred of us in this room. There's a hundred different perspectives. But if you come to me and be like, there was no accident, I should hold the right to be like, ah, uh -uh, there was an accident. Like at the very least, like I'm not ignoring your perspective and where you've seen it. But if you're telling me there's no accident and 99 of us seen the accident, there's an accident, right? So I get all of that, right? But what James is saying is that if we're going to hold each other accountable, we do it by God's law. We do it living by the Spirit. We do it to build up. And the only way we do it to build up is to do it in relationship. And this is hard because it means that those of us who are in relationship, when we see a sister or brother doing what they're not, we got to gauge and, and do that dance of like, how do I not judge? How do I love and hold accountable? And that's why you need the Holy Spirit. But that's also why you need people who've done some of this before or people in your life you love and trust that you can actually bounce ideas off of, right? Because a lot of times we think that we have to figure everything out and solve everything and fix everything. No, there's, not only, there's nothing new under the sun, but if you're in the family of God, if you belong to one another, it's okay to ask for help. Because like we said a couple weeks ago, right? Righteous anger leads to destruction. And someone who loves you can say like, hey, I don't really think you're being accountable here. I think you're being a little judgy, right? And someone who loves you can say like, hey, 
I know like you think this is about you and what happened to you, but like how do you love your sister in this? And I think that's the hard work here because again, our anger will always lead to this destruction. But accountability doesn't have to be judgment, but it has to be done in relationship because it's easy to cut down. It's easy to cut down. Most of us learned this in middle school, right? Most of us learned this in middle school. Like, you have a best friend on Monday, but by Wednesday, like, you're raging at each other, right? Most of us learned this on Facebook, right? I'm sure all of you, maybe, maybe you're just safe and good people, right? Some of us put up posts that we think is innocent. And then we go away and live our lives and we come back, we're like, wow, I did not know what I just did. But like there's people fighting in my comments and I don't even know what we're fighting about, you know? But the thing is, while it's easy to cut down, while it's hard to build up, the call for us, the call for you, the call for the kingdom is that we are all to build up. There's a, a Kevin Hart clip, and I'll end with this. <laughs> Got to end with Kevin Hart. And it's actually kind of taken on African-American lexicon. I, I'm seeing it spreading now, which is good, because that's what we do. We influence culture, you know? And he has this line where he says, do you, boo-boo. And I love it. Because the idea that he's talking about is that, like, you know, there's just some people who are just going to do whatever they want to do. So he's like, do you, boo-boo, right? But I thought about what James is saying, right? And he says, God is judge. You are not. Obey the law. Don't judge the law. Let God be God. Do you, boo-boo. That's the Johnson Living Translation, right? Let God be God. Do you, boo-boo. And what you have to do is to love. What you have to do is to build relationships. What you have to do is to be a safe space. What you have to do is to build up. What you have to do is to show mercy and compassion and grace. Because here's the thing about this life. You may be the one giving mercy and compassion and grace today. But you might be the one who needs it tomorrow. Amen? Amen. I'd like to call up the worship team. We're going to end with a, a pretty familiar song, Build My Life. And, and as we sing this song, I want us to just hold on to this idea of how we're to build our life in a way that builds up one another. That's our challenge, right? To not just trust in our God, to not just love our God, but how are we building in our lives together in a way that's building each other up? If there's any other pastors in the room, I'd like to invite you up. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe it's something you want to respond to in the service, or, or maybe it's just anything you've got going on. We'd love to pray for you. But as we sing Build My Life, I want you to keep it in the back of your head. How am I building my life? That shows I love my God, but it also shows my sister and brother that I love them. And here's the tricky part about that. So that they know I love them, <laughs> right? Like, it's important that, like, if this is how someone receives love, I need to give love that way, right? So it's not just, like, I love my sister and brother. If they don't know you love them, do you love them? If they can't receive the love from you, are you truly giving love? Because love isn't just saying, this is love, here, take it, Right? How does your sister and brother receive love? And for James, it's simple. Build them up here. Don't cut them down. Let's stand and sing together.